0: I invite you to uh, open your copy of God's Word again to Revelation chapter 21. We will be in chapter 21, verse 1 through chapter 22, uh, verse 5 today. We have just two weeks left uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, last week I sat in on a, uh, a Bible study class uh, after talking about the millennium and I felt like my brain was still melting out of my ears and... Uh, and uh, uh, one young man in the class said, Pastor, I have a bone to pick with you. I said, what's that? He said, you said that we would be in Revelation for like five months, but by my count, it's been about seven. And I said, maybe we count months differently. I don't know, but it has been a long time. And I want to uh, give you credit for hanging in. Revelation is not an easy book. Uh, there's a lot of heavy duty stuff. And, uh, and if you've not spent a lot of time studying it, or you have spent a lot of time studying it, um, it doesn't necessarily get a whole lot easier. So I appreciate you hanging in there with with me and with God's Word through this uh, really very encouraging book of the Bible, and we have just two weeks left and two very uh, I think encouraging passages. So Revelation chapter 21. If you're new to making your way around the Bible, uh, if you have a copy of it, um, if you uh, just turn to the very back flip back a few pages. The title of the book of the Bible will be on the top left or top right-hand corner of the page. Uh, The first number there next to the name of the book is the chapter, and the second number after the colon is the first verse that appears on that page. The large numbers in your Bible are the chapters. The small superscripted numbers are the verses. So we're in Revelation chapter 21, uh, verse 1. Kill the dragon, get the girl, live happily ever after. This, friends, is the basic plot of every fairy tale that has ever been told. Kill the dragon, get the girl, live happily ever after. But it's more than a fairy tale, we have to admit. It's more than just a children's fantasy, this story. Kill the dragon, get the girl, live happily ever after, after is the very deeply ingrained story of our spiritual existence. Revelation has revealed to us. Remember that word revelation comes from the Greek word apokaluo or apocalypsis, which means a revealing, a pulling back of the curtain that, that seems to hide spiritual realities from what is going on in the physical world around us. Revelation is exposing, revealing the spiritual realities behind the things that we see going on in the world around us every day. Revelation has revealed to us the dragon who is Satan who is today waging a war against the princess, who is the bride of Christ, who is the church, who herself awaits rescue from the rider on the white horse, Jesus himself. And when that victory is won, they will live happily ever after. Kill the dragon, get the girl, live happily ever after. That's what Jesus does. Revelation has shown us the impending doom of the dragon and the rescue of the girl already. We've seen the marriage supper of the Lamb, the union between Christ and His church forevermore. Now today we get to look in Revelation 21 and 22 at the happily ever after of the people who belong to God and to the Lamb. This may be the moment you've all been waiting for in Revelation. I don't know. Revelation 21 and 22 reveal to us that as this age closes... God will, and and after, after Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, to take those who belong to him into the new heavens, new earth, and all of that, at the close of this age, God will renew the cosmos, this universe, heaven and earth. He'll renew it in perfect righteousness, where in the new heavens and new earth, he will dwell with his people in perfect community for time everlasting. The main idea of Revelation 21 and 22 is this, that God will bring a home to us. Friends, that is even better than Eden. He will bring a home to us that is even better than the garden that he made for the first man and the first woman. As we come to understand these things and and look at Revelation 21 and 22 today, I want for us, uh, first of all, as we look through these passages, to know what Scripture says about heaven so that we're not confused about it. I find there's often a lot of confusion about what heaven will be, and Revelation 21 and 22 has a lot, brings a lot of clarity to the Christian about what heaven is going to be like. So we'll come to understand that this morning, but we also need for the glorious reality of heaven to inspire our faithfulness to Jesus today. The glorious reality of what awaits us to be what encourages us to pursue Christ and pursue sanctification this day. I invite you as you're comfortably able, stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. John, as he continues receiving this revelation from Christ through the Holy Spirit, writes these words, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are true are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty i will give from the spring of water of life without payment to the one who conquers the one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. You may be seated. God will bring a home to us that is even better than Eden. In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, these first verses of this uh, penultimate chapter of this uh, revelation, this letter of prophecy to the first century church and to every church, every Christian that follows after, these first verses show us that heaven is a new cosmos. When I say cosmos, I mean universe. I mean everything that we can see and feel and know and touch, the stars, the moons, the planets, the sky above, the trees here, the sea. Heaven is a new cosmos. It's a new everything. Everything. Now, just as in the first beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, so also at the last beginning, God will create, the, recreate the heavens and the earth. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first had passed away. God himself says, I am making all things new. At the first sin of Adam, in that first beginning, in the first garden, everything was broken. Adam's fellowship with God was broken. Adam's relationship to the earth was broken. Adam's relationship to his wife was broken. Satan, that ancient serpent, won a temporary victory as he saw every good creation of God subjected to futility because of man's disobedience. Even now we know that we still live in a world that is groaning. We live in bodies that groan, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, groaning to put on a new existence, a new reality, groaning to put on immortality, groaning to put on what we were meant to have in the beginning. At the end of all things... When God has judged the living and the dead, we saw that picture, the great white throne, great judgment around the the great white throne last week in Revelation 20. After God has judged the living and the dead, after he's cleansed the universe of all moral evil, the stage will be set for him to bring those who belong to him to their new home. Or should I say, he will bring our new home to us. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of the sky, prepare The very last vision of John that, that John receives in Revelation is of this home that God is bringing to his people. Heaven, or as we often call it, is more properly the new heavens and New Earth. The place that people, the, the place that the people that Christ has rescued from sin, the place that they'll live forever with him, is not some faraway, misty, shiny, floaty space for all of our disembodied spirits to hover about. Heaven is not this this strange cosmic petri dish of shiny souls floating about indistinguishably. That's not it. Heaven is way better than that. John says that it is this cosmos, this creation, this universe, this heaven and earth, but renewed, made new, made over, clothed with immortality, like Paul would say in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. What John sees coming for the saints in Revelation 21 is what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 65 and 66. It's this world made new. John says there was no sea there, which is interesting. To say it's just to say that in this place there will be not that there will be no large bodies of water, but that there will be no chaos. There will be no, na- no danger. There will be no murky depths from which satanic beasts can come. Remember Revelation chapter 13. The first beast comes from the sea. In the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more sea. There will be no more place for beasts that are inspired and empowered by Satan to come and wage war against God's people. Pastor John Piper, when asked about uh, uh, this, about there being no sea there, he said, I, I think there will be large bodies of water. He said, I think the, the sea will just be like a lake. Lakes are safe. You can go swimming in lakes. You're not going to get eaten by a shark there. You know. It's also a the new heavens the new earth the new cosmos the home that we will go that, that god will bring to us who belong to jesus is also a new city john tells us it's a new city that looks like a bride that's adorned for her husband now already we saw in revelation chapter 19 the people of christ called the bride and now the new city that is coming for his people is called the bride as well so which is it which is the bride of christ is it the city or the people well i think it's both inasmuch as A city is more than its building, so also the bride of Christ is more than just a new city. It's a new city filled with all the people that give the city its character and its life. A city without any people is a ghost town, and that is certainly not what God is bringing to those who belong to the Lamb. The best thing about the new cosmos, though, we find, is that God is there. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, God says in verse 3. That is the, the the primary distinguisher of this place, that God lives there with his people. In the new creation, God's home will be our home, and our home will be God's home. God has always been where we are. He's, he's transcendent that way. We often say God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all of the time. But we have not always been where God is. In the new creation, heaven and earth will merge in a glorious reality that where God is, we will be also, and that place will be our home. Not just a a vacation site, not just a, a temporary lodging place, the place where we live. Because it is in the perfect presence of God, this new heavens, this new earth, this new cosmos, there's no more stain or trace of sin to be found Every tear of sorrow, every tear of mourning from death and pain will be wiped away, never to return, God says, because he is making everything that is currently old and broken new again. And friends, know that it is God who will do this. God was introduced to us as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, at the beginning of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 9 they were reminded uh, and were reminded of the same reality here at the end of revelation he is the alpha the omega the beginning and the end god is the timeless one the all powerful one the eternal creator who does this who brings a new heaven and a new earth because he has promised us this reality and because he has promised us this reality, we can be certain that his words are trustworthy and true. So he tells John, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. What I'm showing you is not a gimmick. It's not a trick. This is really going to happen. In the new cosmos, God gives water of life to quench every thirsty soul free for the asking. He says, to the thirsty, I'll give from the spring of water of life without payment. There in that place, without sin to interfere, God will be a father to those who conquer, to those who overcome. Remember seven times to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus gives a call to the church to conquer, to overcome, to overcome the temptation to fall away from faith by holding in confidence to his death and resurrection, which itself has secured their forgiveness of sin and secured their right to live with bold, and has called them to live with bold witness to his name and to the gospel of his salvation, even though they might die for it. Conquering comes, overcoming comes by faithful endurance with Christ. And for those who cling to the Son of God in this age, God the Father is pleased to call his sons and daughters for time everlasting in the next. To the one who overcomes, I will give this heritage. I will be his God, I will be his Father, and he will be my Son. The new cosmos, the new heavens, and new earth, friends, we learn is reserved for the holy, for the sanctified, for the justified, for the forgiven. There's a list of people in verse 8 who will not enter that place. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If we're being honest, we can all find ourselves described in one form or another in that list, can't we? I read Revelation 21.8. And I feel like all of my sins are now plastered on a billboard for everyone to see. Like Revelation 21.8 20, is talking about me. Except for maybe sorcery. And that's just because I don't really know how. But Revelation 21.8 is talking about me. When I look at my life and the things that I have, I have done. When I reflect on who I, who I am in my own nature. In my own heart. I'm these things. I'm cowardly. I've been faithless. I've acted in detestable ways. I haven't murdered anyone, but Jesus says, if you harbor anger in your heart against your brother, you're guilty of murder. Why? Because the act of murder comes from the same place as, as, as harboring anger in your heart and unforgiveness in your heart toward another person. It's just a, a sinful desire to be right and they be wrong, to stand and judge over somebody else. So, sexually immoral, Jesus says, if you've ever lusted after a woman that is not your, your own wife, you've committed adultery. Sorcerers, idolaters, I've, I haven't messed around with, with black magic, but I certainly have acted idolatrously at times, worshiping things, going after things that are not God. Certainly I've lied. So we're going to like five out of seven of these things I'm guilty of. My portion is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Am I reading that right? If we're all being honest, we can find ourselves in one form or another on that list in Revelation 21.8. So how then can a Christian speak with any confidence about this heritage that is ours in the new heaven and the new earth? What makes a Christian different from these sorts of people if all of us, even as Christians, can find ourselves described in this verse? Friends, the difference is Christ himself. The difference is not anything in us. The difference is not who we are. The difference is in who Christ is. The funny thing is that heaven will be full of people who were once cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Heaven will be full of people who once were like that. Only these will be those who have seen their sin in this life for the offense to God that it is and the harm to their soul that it poses. And they will have turned to Christ for cleansing, to the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world turning to him in faith that they might be justified to God, made right with God through Christ, his son, and to have all of those horrid sins that describe us so well, covered in his righteousness and covered in his grace. The new heavens and new earth is a place for the holy, who are made holy, not by their own efforts, but by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in their place, received in faith as the only uh, sacrifice, the only payment that can be made for our sin. Heaven is a new cosmos, and the new cosmos is for sinners who have received new life in Christ. The new cosmos, the new heaven and new earth, the, home, the, the place where God makes his home with man is for sinners who have received new life in Christ. You know, this is not the only place that we see a list of sins that seems to speak with such specificity to each of our hearts in one way or another. Paul did the same when he wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11... He reminded the church of this truth. He said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm sure many of the Corinthians were looking at that list and going, Goodness me, I'm on there somewhere. But Paul continues in verse 11 of the same passage. He says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. In the past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. That's what that word means. You were justified, which means you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The new cosmos is a place for people, for sinners, who have been made right with God through faith in Jesus who have been made holy by clinging to Christ as Savior. There is new life. Know this. There is forgiveness of sin. There is right standing with God and the right to live with Him forever, not for the perfect, but for those who have been washed in the blood of Christ's sacrificial death, who have been brought to new life by trusting in Him, in the Lamb who was slain for sins and raised from the dead in victory. Friend, can you, can you claim this hope of heaven? Not because you think your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, but can you claim this hope of heaven? Can, can you, do you have this confident expectation of living in the place where God is in eternity for time everlasting because Christ has made you clean? Can you, can you lay claim to that? I'm a little scared this morning, church, because I don't see much confidence in some of your eyes. And we're supposed to all be Christians That's kind of funny, but it's not supposed to be. Can we lay claim to this hope of heaven because we know Christ? Is that great song by Robert Lowry that he wrote in 1876, is it true of us? Like, is this the song of our soul? What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Knowing that my sins look a lot like Revelation 21.8 and 1 Corinthians. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Not my good good efforts, not my good works, not my hardest try, but nothing but the blood of Jesus. Robert Lowry tells us that nothing can for sin atone. Nothing of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope. This is all my peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this, I'll overcome. Now by this, I'll reach my home. Not because I'm good enough and smart enough and pretty enough. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Glory, glory, this I sing. All my praise for this I bring. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Christian, if you can't celebrate in that, something's wrong with you this morning. Something's wrong with all of us right now this morning. Uh, Either, no, uh, stop laughing. Either we really don't know the blessing of knowing Christ, Christian. Understand this morning, Christian, there may, uh, this is not in my notes, just throw that aside. Listen, there may be non-believers in this room right now that don't believe the gospel can change lives because we as Christians don't seem to give a rip that Jesus has made us clean rejoice in that christian be glad in that brother sing praises sister hear me look look, this is not theatrics i just sometimes i get so frustrated this is the best thing in scripture i've been made clean i've been made new in christ i have a right i have i have my home in heaven been made right with god i've been given this heritage why because i've i've been a pastor for so many years no because christ is righteous because Jesus died to redeem even all of my good works, which without Christ are filthy rags. Friends, we have nothing to offer a holy, righteous God. Absolutely nothing. We look at Revelation 21.8. We read that list. Friend, if you don't find yourself there, you're lying to yourself. What we deserve is death. What we deserve is eternal, spiritual separation from God because we have offended His perfect holiness. Holiness. We have incurred his just and righteous wrath against our sin. We deserve the second death. And God is just and right to give it to us. Christian, outside of Christ, you deserve hell. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I've never been that way, but I will be today if I have to. To help you, to help us to appreciate the wonderful gift of heaven. Because it's a gift. It's not something we've earned. It's not something we've deserved. It's not something that we've made ourselves deserving of. It's God's gift to those who didn't deserve it, that He might be glorified in them, made, whole, made, made majestic, and His glory reflected in them as He makes us home with them forever. Christian, if we can't celebrate that, something's wrong with us. Something's wrong with us. If we can't sing these these wonderful words by Robert Lowry, nothing but the blood of Jesus, if we can't sing that with a smile in our face and joy in our hearts, something's wrong with us. If something's wrong with you this morning, friend, I I invite you to repent of it today. Christian, if you've lost your love for Jesus, such that you can't rejoice in this, repent of it today. Ask Jesus, make me, make me new. Fix whatever's broken in me. Help me rejoice in the reality that I have, the salvation that I have in your name, Lord. Because something ain't right. Amen. Heaven is more than a new cosmos. John goes on. Verses 9 through 27 of Revelation 21. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates and at the gates were 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates and on the north were three gates on the south were three gates and on the west three gates. the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth uh, emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven is more than a new cosmos. John tells us it's also a new city. The new heavens and new earth is a new city, a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital city of God's people, Israel. It's a new capital city for God's people. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied about a new city like this. In Ezekiel 40-48, through in his day, in Ezekiel's day, about 600 years before Christ was born, Ezekiel watched Jerusalem fall to the Babylonians. And he watched the temple of the Lord destroyed. And it's his prophecy of a new Jerusalem that is informing many of the descriptions of the new city that John uses to describe it here. There are basically two realities that John highlights for us about the new cosmos, which is a new city. First of all, this city is perfectly secure. John describes that there is a great high wall with 12 gates, guarded by 12 angels, and on the gates are the names of the tribes of the sons of Israel. This wall is either incredibly thick or incredibly high. He says its measurement is 144 cubits, but he doesn't tell us if it's this way or that way, but either way, it's big. And the gates are guarded and they're labeled for entry by those who belong to the Lamb. Over the gates, over each of the gates is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And we can presume that these are the same names that were mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 belonging to, uh, uh, that, that denote the sealed of the Lamb, 12,000 from each of the tribe. They're figuratively speaking of the fullness of God's people. Now this city, this new city, New Jerusalem, is not only physically secure, but it's architecturally sound. Every city worth its salt in the ancient world put foundations down deep into the bedrock of the earth. But the new Jerusalem is no different. It rests on bedrock too, but not on bedrock of stone. Rather, this one rests on the bedrock of the gospel. The names of the apostles of the Lamb are the foundation, are, are, are written on the foundation of this city. The preaching of the apostles, the good news of Christ's salvation that he gives to all who come to him in faith, is what undergirds this city. And more still, there's no night there. And the gates are never shut. The gates are never shut because there's no sin to keep out. It seems kind of silly to have a city with a whole bunch of gates that are never closed. Like, why have a gate if you're not going to close it? Just remember, in the ancient world, if you have a city with no walls, you're an idiot. And if you have walls with no gates, you're doubly an idiot. So it's just a picture of a perfectly secure city, right? It's a city that everyone would expect to see, but in images that that, that demonstrate it's perfectly secure. There are no shadows for thieves to hide in because there's no night. There's no darkness that serves as a cover for wickedness. This city is a perfectly secure home for the community of the Lamb's people. Understand that. This new city is perfectly secure, but secondly, and more importantly, it is filled with the glory of God. This city is filled with the glory of God. In fact, this is one of the first things that we're told about the city in in, uh, Revelation 21 verse 11, that it has the glory of God. His beauty, his majesty, his magnificence is resplendent glory shining and reflecting on and through everything that is there. This city radiates like a jewel, and John describes it like that. It has streets of gold that are, that, is, that is clear as glass. I've never seen clear gold, and neither have you. So obviously, John is using symbolic language here. But it has streets of gold, clear as glass, gates of pearl, these are obviously not literal descriptions of the building materials of that city, but it's a description of the reality that the place is just shot through with the beauty of God. Every square inch of heaven, of our eternal home, where Christ is, is shot through with the beauty of God. We get a tiny, tiny, infinitesimal glimpse of that in a diamond which is the the, the most valuable of, of jewels in the world today. A tiny glimpse of that. We're talking about a whole city that is billions of times infinitely greater in majesty and glory than a diamond is today. And why? Not because the sun shines through it in a pretty way, but because God's glory shoots through that whole place. This city is not just a reflecting pool for God to shine his glory on from afar. This city is the actual home of the fullness of his glorious presence. John tells us that this city has no temple. But the temple is God the Almighty and the Lamb. The temple that stood in the old Jerusalem was a place that was designed by God for his people to meet with him. But their access was limited. In the temple, only priests could enter the the temple proper. There was a courtyard around that, that members of the people of Israel could come. But inside the temple itself, where there were two rooms, one larger, one smaller, only the priests could go. And only the high priest could enter the innermost room of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God said he would make his footstool. And at that, the high priest could only go once a year. That room, the Holy of Holies, was a cube by dimension uh in in solomon's temple it was about twice as large as it was in the tabernacle uh that the israelites constructed during the uh uh, after the exodus period and in their wilderness wandering but it was a cube in all dimensions same same dimensions width height and depth this city that we read about coming out of heaven as it's measured is what shape it's a cube It's 12,000 stadia in length, height, and width. That's about 1,400 miles in every every direction. So it's described as massively large. Again, I don't think this is a literal description of how large it is, although certainly a city of that sort of dimension uh, uh, could house as many as God saw fit to squeeze in there. But it's massively large. It's divinely huge and divinely large enough for all of God's people. Understand this clearly, friends. The new Jerusalem... Is a cosmic holy of holies that is large enough for every one of God's people to enter, and not just for a brief visit, but to live there. It's a place where everyone who's been washed clean by the Lamb can enter as a priest of God. And not just for one day, but for every day, for all days, forevermore. When Ezekiel prophesied about a new city, in Ezekiel forty-eight, he told us what the name of that city was. He said in the very last verse of Ezekiel, the city is called the Lord is there. That's the name of the city. The new Jerusalem that John sees coming down out of heaven is every bit the city where the Lord is. It is perfectly secure because God has made it that way and it is shot through with his glory in in a manner that would arrest, that ought to arrest the attention of everyone who even thinks to imagine such a place know this, the new heavens and new earth, which is a new city, the new Jerusalem, that this place is the Christian's true homeland. This is where we who know Christ really belong, where we call home. This is the place of our citizenship. Think for a moment back to kind of where we started in Revelation 2 and 3. We saw the many churches uh, throughout Asia Minor that John was writing to Christians who lived in the ancient Roman Empire who were trying to find a way to be faithful to Christ and also have a living, make a living, maintain citizenship in a a nation and under a government that hated them, persecuted them, tortured them, executed them because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Because they said, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. These people who lived in the Roman Empire who felt like they had no homeland, because they couldn't worship the emperor who had enthroned himself as a god. Think about how they would have understood this picture of a new Jerusalem. Finally, a home. A secure home where people aren't trying to starve me and my family Because I won't say Caesar is Lord. A a secure home where there's no evil, where thieves are not plotting to break into my home and steal what I have and take everything away from me because of my faith in Jesus. A secure place, a, a home where only people who've been made clean by the blood of the Lamb can go. And on top of that, God is there. In a land full of temples to pagan gods and pagan idols... The Christian got to look forward to, and still, friend, has to look forward to, a city with no temple. Why? Because God's already there. There's no place of worship because the whole place is a place of worship. We are there in his presence. The new Jerusalem is the Christian's true homeland. Friend, Christian, your true homeland is not the United States of America. Your true homeland is not Albuquerque, New Mexico. God bless it. God will love it. Best food in the world. It'll be what we eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I think. Enchilados and Navajo tacos for everybody. But, but this is not our home. Now, it doesn't mean we don't, we don't live with integrity and righteousness and Christ-likeness wherever we find ourselves. Of course we do. But we don't put our hope, we don't put all of our comfort, we don't, we don't make this place the place of our final, ultimate citizenship. We know that there's a better city, a more secure city, a city that, that doesn't just reflect in little ways here and there the glory of God, but a city that is shot through with His majesty in a way that will arrest our attention and inspire our worship for billions of years to come. The new Jerusalem is the Christian's homeland. The new cosmos is a new... Uh, the, the Heaven is a new cosmos. Heaven is a new city. Revelation 22, 1 through 5 tells us that it's something else. Beginning in chapter 22, verse 1, John continues Then the angel, the same angel that's been showing him all this, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more they will need no lamp of light or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever heaven is a new cosmos heaven is a new city friends heaven is a new garden heaven is a new garden The last image John gives to us of this new heavens, new earth, shows us that this place is more than a new cosmos. It's more than a new city. It's a garden. With the image of the river of life and the tree of life, we're immediately taken back. We ought to be, those of us who are familiar with our Bibles anyway, taken back in our minds to Genesis and the Garden of Eden. Here, John shows us that the new heavens and new earth are like that garden, only better the river of life that is there is what God gives freely to all who ask of it without cost, and it is the river that nourishes the tree of life. The focus here is upon the that tree of life in ezekiel 's vision Ezekiel chapter forty seven He sees a river that comes pouring out from under the temple that he a vision he, he visions um, there in, in, in the, the picture of it that God gave to him, and here this same river comes from the throne of God where he dwells with his people. In Ezekiel's vision, that river sustained all kinds of fruit trees. And here in John's vision, it sustains one miraculous tree. The tree of life, we read, that spans both sides of the river, is ever fruitful. It's never withering. Its leaves, its fruit gives healing to the nations. It's a tree that is available for anyone of any nationality or ethnicity to eat from, and it gives fruit all the time. But better than this miraculous river, and better than this wonderful tree of life that are there, better than these, is that those who live in the garden have restored fellowship and intimacy with God. Don't get caught up in the particulars that are not quite as important as the most important thing. The river of life, the tree of life, absolutely important. Symbols of of, of God's, pictures of God's eternal, everlasting sustenance of his people. But more important than that is that God is there. John tells us that in that place, in that new garden, they will see his face. A new state of existence has begun for those who live in the new garden. The Lord told Moses in Exodus chapter 33 verse 20, when Moses said, Lord, show me your face. Let me see what you look like. God said to him, no one can see my face and live, but I will show you my back. I will show you where I have been, so to speak. And he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passes behind him so that when Moses turns around, he can see the the wake of God's glory as it passed behind him. God said to Moses, no one can see me face to face and live. But there in the new garden, there where there is life everlasting, in that place where uh, God is there with his people, they will see him face to face and there is no fear of death. Moreover, we're told that his name will be on their foreheads. We've seen this image already at least twice, uh, maybe three times in Revelation. We've already seen this to be true, that the name of the lamb is on the foreheads of those who belong to him in Revelation 3.12 and 7.3 and 14.1. This is a a claim, this is a picture of God's exclusive and gracious possession of his people. His name is on their foreheads, not like a tattoo, it's a figure of speech, but His name is on their foreheads because they belong to him. Everything they think about, everything they know, everything they feel, all that they speak, all comes from being possessed by God, known by him, in intimate, close union with him. They belong to him. And not just for a little while, friends, but forever, time everlasting. The people who live in the new garden will see God's face. His name will be on their foreheads. And there in that place we're told again for the second time in this passage that night will be no more. Night will be no more. Like there's no longer any sea in that place. This is a symbol of security in that garden. The night is when thieves break in and steal. And darkness is where sinners hide their sin. At night scorpions come out and crawl all over your face and do creepy things if you're out camping without a tent. The night is when bad things happen. The night is where sinners try to hide their sinning, as as Jesus says in John chapter 3. But since all things are made new, since all things are purified, all things are sanctified by the Lord, there in the new garden there will be no sin. There will be no serpents to tempt. There will be no sinfulness in our own heart that tells us we can be like God. And so let's find a way to rebel against him. Neither will there be any outside sinful threat to God's people. No longer will there be sinful, wicked governments conspiring to persecute God's people there. Because night is gone. Every trace of sin has been wiped away. These three visions we have of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a new cosmos. It's a new city. It's a new garden. Grow in intensity of intimacy as we walk through them, don't they? A new cosmos, that's one thing. There's a lot of space in space. A new city, that's a little bit closer. I know the people that a new garden, that's something altogether different. I'm not a gardener. I don't have a green thumb. I have a black thumb. I kill everything I try to grow. So I'm not particularly fond of gardens, but friends, I like this one. I like this one. Because here is a picture of the intimacy of God with his people in all of the serenity, in all of the perfection, in all of the completion and consummation of his design for relationship with those that he would redeem through Christ that he planned from the very beginning. God is not taking us back, or he's not taking us to something that we've never seen before. He's taking taking us back to where he designed for us to live in the first place, place—a perfect paradise where we're in close, intimate fellowship with him. And not just for a minute, not just for a mountaintop high experience on a Sunday morning in church where we may feel particularly close to God, but forever. Forever. The new cosmos is a, or the new heavens is a new cosmos, it's a new city, and it's a new garden where we will live in perfect union with God and with the Lamb forever. So, Christian, I encourage you this morning. Cultivate a new garden heart by pressing into Jesus today. Cultivate in you the kind of relationship today that you will have with God forever. The very wonderful truth is that the tempting serpent, the dragon who opposes the people of God, he has already been crushed by the son of the woman, Jesus. Jesus, God's only begotten son, went to a garden the night he was betrayed and was nailed to a cursed tree the next day to redeem all humanity from the sin that ruined the first garden. And in his dying, he has purchased the right to enter into a new garden that is coming for all who have come to trust in him. At the very same time, he has made a way for us to have New garden, new city, new creation hearts today. New creation lives today. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What did God say in Revelation 21, verse 5? I am making all things new. To be sure, friends, we are waiting for the day when God makes all things new. But surer still, he has already put a new heart in us when we trust Christ. Truer still, that new creation work has already begun in the church of Jesus Christ who loves him as Lord. We have already been made new creations. So, Christian, live like it. Live like you're in the new garden now. Cultivate the garden of your heart where Christ dwells presently in the Holy Spirit. Commune with him in prayer. Rest in His presence. Meditate on His Word. Fertilize your nearness to Christ with nearness to other Christians who are doing the same thing. Sing His praises. Care for His people. Serve the world in love. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with all boldness. With the desire to bring that new creation reality into the hearts of whoever will hear it and receive it. All time forevermore will be spent doing all of these things. But we do not need to wait for that new garden. We don't need to wait for that new city. We don't need to wait for the new cosmos to live a new creation life. That reality is on its way and we rejoice in it. But that doesn't mean we just sit on our hands until it shows up. That life that we'll have in that place, save immortality, is already ours in Jesus. So Christian, put your hand to the plow. And start tilling the soil of your soul, sowing seeds of life in Christ that will grow and blossom and bear glorious fruit today. And all the more on the day that he brings our new forever home, the garden that is even better than Eden, as he brings that place to us. Christian, I hope and pray we can find something to rejoice in this morning. Not because this is a, 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 a neat picture of heaven. But because we know that this is ours, because we've come with humble and contrite hearts before the God that we have offended by our sin and said, God, I have nothing to offer you except my brokenness and my total dependence upon you. Friends, it's only by Christ that we enter into this place. It's only the lamb who shed his blood for us that we can go into this place that we can live forever in this reality, this new garden with perfect intimacy with God. Christian, if you're looking for something else, if you're you're depending on something else to get you here, if you think there's something about heaven more enticing, more wonderful, more exciting than Jesus himself, repent of that sinfulness in your heart. See that Jesus is the best thing about this place. See that life forever in perfect communion with God, your creator, is the best thing about heaven and delight in it. Rejoice in it and start living in light of the new creation that he has made you by faith in his son today. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't have hope of heaven because you, you, your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life because you've not come to trust Christ as Lord, I extend the opportunity to you this morning know him today. Jesus, the only son of God, God in human flesh, born of a virgin who lived a life without sin, the life that none of us could ever hope to live in a billion years. Gave his sinless life on a cross, executed for crimes he did not commit. And in that moment of his death, God looked on his death as a substitute, as a payment for our sins. Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. As Lord of life, as King of kings, Lord of lords, he was raised in victory over sin and death on the third day, never to die again in a glorified body as the first fruits, as the first picture, the down payment of the resurrection for all who would follow him in faith. And now Jesus says to everyone who will hear, come to me. And he doesn't say come to me all who are righteous and perfect and well put together. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me all who are tired of trying to prove yourself to God, knowing you'll never be successful in it. Come to me all of you who are burdened by your sin, burdened by the weight of your disobedience to God, your rejection of his authority in your life, burdened by the pain that your sin has caused in the lives of others and the pain that the sins of others have caused in your life. Come to me with all of your weakness and I will give you rest come to Christ in faith you say to God in the words of your own heart something like God I realize you are holy you are perfect and that I have sinned against you I have tried to do life my own way on my own terms how I want, where I want, with who I want when I want and in so doing I deserve death separation from you, it's what the Bible says God I feel the weight of my sin and I'm sorry for it I know that I need a savior to be right with you And I believe that Jesus, your son, is that one and only Savior. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I'm making him my Lord today, my king today, master and commander of my soul. I'm coming to him for rest, not just today, but every day. So God, save me, make me whole, make me new like your word promises. And give me all the hope of heaven today and all the abundant life that you promise now until I see you again. Friend, be saved from your sin today be made right with God today. Claim heaven as your heritage, not because you're good enough, not because you're smart enough, not because you're pretty enough, but because Christ has done for you on one day what you could never do for yourself in a billion days. Fall on him in faith. Receive him as Lord. Be changed forever. And then friend, if that's your decision today, let somebody know. For goodness sake, find me Pastor Danny, any of the number of members in our church say, I need to trust to this Jesus today. I need my life transformed by him today. Help me know how. And let us walk with you as you grow as a follower of Jesus, as you grow in knowledge of who he is, as he, as he begins to fill your life, your heart, your mind with all of his character, changing you from the inside out, sanctifying you, making you ready, making you holy to live in this place, to live in this home that he is bringing to us. Let's pray together and ask that the Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts in response to his word.